Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, a professor, and a chaplain, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Eelman, and today we are talking about being a missionary-minded church. In this episode, we want to help faithful churches win as many people to Christ as possible. And so in order to do that, we need to realize you don't need to choose between staying small or becoming a giant consumeristic church that's void of the gospel. Instead, we need to start thinking about life in the church as being missionaries, especially in an anti-Christian Western culture that we live in. So before we get started, Aaron, I know you have a bit of good news you wanted to share with our listeners, so I'll let you take that away. Oh, I can't really think of anything. Um, Nothing good at news, all. Good news. Uh, oh, yeah, I do have some good news. So I wasn't going to tell too many people this. I, I wasn't going to make a public statement about this, but the media has caught on to it. <laughs> so, so I might as well let my listeners know that both of my Windsor charges for opening my church here in Windsor in 2020 and 2021 have been withdrawn by the Ontario Court of Justice. Praise the Lord. So very thankful for that. Also, one of my Stratford protest charges have been withdrawn. So, but the Windsor ones are the ones I'm most excited about. And I just, um, I'm thankful to the Lord for that. I wasn't going to say anything because I still have one other charge we're working on, but the um, local newspaper caught on. So it's not the end of the world. Mm -hmm. So I figured I'd let everybody know and they can, jump for joy on the other end of the mic. I do want to thank many of our listeners. I know s- several of you have been praying for us. You've been encouraging me. You have really blessed me through your own faithfulness, and I'm grateful. We're just a little church here in Windsor, Ontario, and I'm just one person. We took a bit of a stance. It led to some consequences, but the Lord has seen fi- fit to vindicate us Mm -hmm. and we're just thankful to the lord for that and to be part of a broader faithful body of christ called the christian church and so that's it's great news and we want to celebrate that today that's good and there was no was there any reason for them withdrawing it or not from what i was told uh they just said that there was no reasonable grounds for conviction cool so i wasn't expecting that because a little while ago they were kind of wanting to push for a court case but um I just didn't personally feel comfortable pleading guilty, um, and the charges were withdrawn. So, cool. Yeah. Good. Very good. Very Excellent. good. You live to preach another day, not <laughs> yeah, in prison for a year right. yet. So yeah. that's good. Well, today we want to talk about this idea of being a missionary-minded church. And so to get us started, maybe you could explain what biblical truths can kind of help us to remain optimistic about the advancement of the gospel, about being missionaries in culture especially since there's so much anti-Christian ideology being accepted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think think that many Christians have a very pessimistic view of the gospel, but if you read the New Testament, that's not what you see there. So when Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, he meant it. He doesn't say that it's going to be a bed of roses. He doesn't say there's not going to be highs and lows, ups and downs throughout history, revivals and decline. But he does say he's going to build his church. And that's a wonderful thing. 
That's in Matthew 16. And then in Acts 2, just after the birthday of the church, they went out, they preached the gospel in the temple courts. And what does it say? The Lord added to their number day by day those that were being, those that were being saved. Now, I dare say, Chris, that if you heard of a church in, in a Western country today that was having salvations every single day, we'd be like, oh, they must be compromised. It must be a false gospel. They must be watering it down. After all, to be a growing church is to be a flaky church, a diet church, a low-calorie church, mm. a compromised church, maybe even a heretical church. And it is true that there are many growing churches that are not faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I also think when we read Scripture that faithful churches are fruitful churches. So there's an optimistic mindset that needs to be adopted when it comes to the way that we perceive of church and church leadership. How many of us, by the way, long for revival, we pray for revival, but we don't necessarily pastor our churches or lead our churches or serve in our churches in a way that facilitates revival. Some might say, oh, no, revival is, that's just God's thing. Well, ultimately, yes, but I want to show my listeners a couple of scriptures that remind us that God uses people, that we are the tools in his toolbox, and we have some responsibility to act in a certain way and to make certain decisions along the way in our ministries that can help position us to have a greater hearing, a greater audience, and to ultimately win more people to Christ. So full disclosure, I do have a very, very high view of God's sovereignty in missions, in salvation. But one of the things God uses to save souls is missionary-minded churches. And I'm talking about churches that are missionary-minded in their own context, in their own culture. I would dare say that if you were living in the first century, having seen what happened in Acts 2, and you then found out about a church that never saw conversions, you'd think that was weird. Mm -hmm. But somehow we've justified this. There are churches in Canada that actually preach the gospel that haven't baptized a new convert in years, don't even have unbelievers come in to their church structures or into their homes. And that's sad. So instead of trying to excuse why our churches aren't growing, because it must not be in God's sovereign plan. I want to challenge, I want to, I want to encourage people to, to let God be God, but also to challenge and equip Christian leaders and influencers to think differently so that you can be use, more useful to the Lord in bearing spiritual fruit, mm -hmm. period. Awesome. So we have people listening, obviously, that love the Lord with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind as best as they know how, but there can sometimes be mental roadblocks to this missionary mindset that stand in the way of an optimistic mindset to this. Can you walk through some of those? Yeah. Well, some, some of this is, as you've said, more caught than taught. So when, when you're in a certain church culture, you, you adopt a certain mindset typically, and you may not even be aware of it. And there's subtle ways of speaking about church or speaking about lost people or the way you do worship that you think is normal, mm -hmm. but it may not be helpful for the advancement of the gospel. And you've asked a good question just about mindset. Like what are some of the mental roadblocks that people need to overcome 
if they're going to see exponential evangelistic growth in their churches. And one of them is they have to get rid of this weird, I don't know where it comes from, notion that being small is being more faithful. I don't know where that comes from, but it's just not true. Now, if you are a church that's six months old and you have eight people in your church, people say that's a small church, but that's pretty impressive. You've won eight people to Christ, or maybe there's two people that have won six to Christ. But if you're a church that's 150 years old and still only have 30, 40, or 50 people coming and you haven't seen a conversion in decades, don't blame it on God's sovereignty. Mm. You need to kind of assess and evaluate what is it that we're doing as a church? Are we unfriendly? Are we communicating in a way that is not understandable? Is our building maxed out? Are we doing a good job in showing hospitality to the stranger? There's tie, tied to this view that smallness is more faithful is the, the opposite, which is growing churches are suspect. Mm-hmm. You often hear people um, say things like, you know, we need, we need fewer mega churches. Actually, we need more. Do you have a problem with what happened in Acts 2? 3,000 people were added one day. Is that, a, is that a problem for you? Does that mean they were unfaithful? Now, I'm not anti-small church. I don't really care what the size of your church is per se. I care about the health of churches, and I do care about the size of a church on the level that every person in there matters to God. Mm-hmm. And of course you'd want to win. Who, who here, you might as well shut the podcast off if you don't want to win more people to Christ and you've already mm-hmm. won. What's the point of even having this conversation? So we all want to win more people to Christ. We all want more people to grow in Christ. But it can be this notion, this this poisoning of the well, that if if your church is, was 200 people last year and it's three, 300 now, you must be compromised. Something must be wrong. We must be watering things down. Well, again, you can be a flaky church preaching false doctrine and have a lot of people show up. But... If you're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and connecting with people and bringing it to life and being wise and thoughtful and missionary-minded in your approach, great. Pray for another 100 next year mm-hmm. kind of thing. I also think some people, this is a big one, I, I think there's a selfishness, and I hate to say this, but there can be a bit of a selfishness associated with our experiences and our relationships in churches because some people have said, I don't want my church to grow. We'll lose our family feel. You know, we don't we don't want to grow. We don't really want more people. We're gonna lose that family feel. Well, I get it. Like I understand it's it's great to if the church is like your cheers bar where everybody knows your name and you you're you've had everybody over for dinner and you're you're intimately connected with each other. But hey, there's a world out there to be one, and there's so few faithful churches, and there's so few men to pastor those churches that we need people to be able to say, look, I don't need to know everybody in my church. I just want more and more people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. I have my small group. I know 100, 200 people. I don't need to know everybody. I'm fine with that. I had to overcome that as a pastor because when we started our church, there was you know, 35 of us, men, women, and children, and I knew everybody by name and had been in their homes. And then you get to a point where it just gets beyond you. And it's like, ah, do I want this? Well, I don't need it, Mm -hmm. 
But I do want it. I do want more people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so you have to build a bigger eldership, and you have to build more small groups, and you have to equip your people to be friendly to the stranger. And by the way, you can go into a very small church that is not family-friendly at all, or you can go into a very large church that is, or the opposite can also be true. So it's really not about the size of your church. It's about what do you value? And if you value creating that family dynamic, you'll figure out a way to do it even if you're a church of 10,000 people. And really, that's just like a small village. And you can go to a lot of small villages in Canada. They're pretty friendly places, and you can go into other places that are kind of unfriendly. So it's about the culture you create. I also think that there's some that would say that um, you know the church is just a preaching outpost. And I, I love preaching. Preaching's critical. You're not going to have a church that's being equipped for Christ-likeness and for Great Commission ministry if they're not faithful in their preaching. Or if you have a person that just doesn't have that gift, they can't string two words together, well, then they're probably not gifted as preachers, and that's going to affect the growth of your church. But having said all of that, we should all react negatively when a church simply perceives of itself as a preaching outpost or a pastor functions in such a way that he's just a preacher. That's not biblical. The pastor elders of the early church are told to oversee, to shepherd, to administrate the affairs of the church, to exercise church discipline, not just to preach. We're not just preachers. It's like saying, instead of calling yourself a plumber, calling yourself a faucet installer. Well, that's one of the things you do. You install faucets, but you also do a lot of other things. You install bathtubs. You install toilets. You fix drains. You install water pipes. All sorts of things. You're not just the sum total of one part of your job. And if a church sees itself just as a preaching outpost, then it's just going to preach, and it's going to preach more, and it's going to preach harder. And over the generations, you're going to get better preaching, more clear preaching. But people might not feel loved. Mm -hmm. People might not feel discipled. People might not feel they're actually worshiping God. And lost people might come in and think, I have no idea what you're even talking about. So even in the way we preach, we have to be uh, considerate of how we unpack the Word of God so that people of all ages and at different phases in life can understand at least the language. They may not understand the deep spiritual truths, but they need to understand the English language that you're preaching in. And preachers sometimes make the mistake of using words or referring to things in the life of the church that only a seasoned Christian would even understand. So I use big words. I think it's important for people to expand their vocabulary. I don't think we should limit our vocabulary to two-syllable words. I think it's important to, to use language in a way that is helpful and that ex expands people's thinking, and there's certain words that just grab a concept or articulate a concept better than others. Let's use them. And I'm not opposed, obviously, to theological words. And I'm not opposed to big, multi-syllable words. But you have to explain them, and you have to help people who, are, who may, maybe have only been Christians for a week or were just invited out to your service. This is the first time they've ever been in church. To not feel like they just stepped onto Mars. And a lot of pastors, I think, and their preaching make an error because they fail to acknowledge that there's 
almost always lost people listening and they don't preach in such a way that is both a blessing to the people of God and uh, understandable to lost people. Now, there's another thing that comes to my mind. The seeker-sensitive movement. The seeker-sensitive movement was a movement in the 80s and 90s that said, you know, when we when we come together as a church, everything we do as a church should be for the proverbial seeker, should be for the lost person. So we dumb down our sermons, we get rid of all our theological jargon, we kind of flatline our liturgy, we make things more entertainment-oriented, we sing secular music to kind of get people in. And I was never a fan of that. I, I think that's that was a very unwise um, movement for people to be part of. And I don't agree that there are seekers. I've read Romans 3. Nobody seeks God. Nobody understands. God's the, God's the seeker. But the one thing about the seeker-sensitive movement that was good is it was reacting to the fact that a lot of Christian churches, when they gather, have this mindset that we're only ministering to Christians here and generally mature Christians. So, you know, God forbid if we actually explain what the Lord's Supper is, because everybody should know that. You know, God forbid that if we use the word justification, we should explain it. God forbid we should actually explain why our liturgy or orders of service are the way they are. Well, the seeker-sensitive movement was acknowledging that at the time we were in a postmodern, uh, post-Christian culture. Um, I would say it's an anti-Christian culture now, but it was a post-Christian culture. And a lot of people just didn't know. They didn't know the language and the lingo. The mistake was they often threw out a lot of solid doctrine. They, they r robbed, in my view, the um, worship of a lot of its profundity and sacredness sort of made it an enter entertaining and you created like a consumer form of Christianity. But thinking like a missionary isn't choosing between a service that only the mature believer understands or only the, to use your language, the seeker mm -hmm. understands. You can do both. You can preach the whole counsel of God's word, addressing any and every subject in such a way that a 15-year-old or a 55-year-old understands it, understands the language is what I'm talking about. A believer or an unbeliever understands the language. We do believe that in preaching there's a spiritual dyna dynamic. God illuminates the minds of those that are filled with the Spirit the true Christian, so we understand things on a deeper level. I'm just talking about language here, the use of language, the way we use metaphor, the way we use Christian language, the words we select, the gestures we use. You don't have to pick between preaching to lost people or saved people. You can preach to both from your end and the way that you communicate using a, hu a human language to do so. Mm -hmm. And others that just say, well, we tried, but nobody showed up. So, well, keep trying. And all, all, never let any excuse enter your mind that hinders you from being missionary-minded. That's the point I want to make. Mm -hmm. So not all, not all growing churches are faithful. There's a lot of big, flaky churches out there. But at the same time, folks, there's a lot of small, flaky churches. 
the, the most liberal, godless, quote-unquote, churches in our country are churches like the United Church of Canada that are pretty much all small congregations. But they're, they're more liberal than the government. They're practically giving the ideas to the government. They're the ones that are in favor of the LGBT agenda before the government really even got on board. Mm -hmm. Flying the flag before the city halls were flying the flag. Well, they were small, but they were vocal, and they shaped Canadian culture for the worst by preaching falsehood and lies. So, but even if they were huge and huge and expansive, it doesn't mean they're faithful. But faithful churches, I think, are going to be fruitful churches, and mm -hmm. they will see. They won't be looking at empty baptistries year after year after year. They won't be looking at dwindling churches. They're going to be buying asphalt and building parking lots and expanding buildings and planting churches because more and more people are going to come to faith in Christ. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if we think about the early church, um, you know, they weren't perfect by any means, but they certainly were zealous about missionary activity. They were very effective seeing many come to Christ. Uh, what would you say, what made them effective? Well, they, they took seriously the Great Commission. They didn't pass the buck back to God. When God sends us out into the world as laborers to minister on his behalf, they didn't go run and hide and say, well, let the sovereign God do it. They trusted in God's sovereignty. We can't save anyone by ourselves. But I, I would remind our listeners of... Um, Matthew 9, when Jesus talks about the harvest being plentiful, and then he asks them to pray that because there's so few laborers, to pray specifically that God would send more laborers into his harvest. So God is overseeing that. We're praying to God that God would sovereignly work. But the prayer is not, hey, God, why don't you do what we're not prepared to do? Mm -hmm. It was not that. It was equip your people, send your people to reach lost people. Well, we all need to evaluate. There's so much time and energy that can go into raising our families that we forget about our neighbor over the fence. In the same way, there's so much time and energy that can go into ministering to our churches that we forget about the lost people around us. So we need to pray, but we also need to get off our chairs and go do our jobs. And as God calls us, and he has called us to be laborers, that's the Great Commission, we need to actually be deliberate deliberative in our desire to seek and to save, seek after, and to bring the saving message to lost people. Mm -hmm. Acts 2, they were faithful to core practices, so that's important. You're not going to win people to Christ if you're bailing out on the apostles' teaching, if you're bailing out on prayer, the breaking of bread. So you have to obviously be faithful as a church to, you don't, you don't toss things out because you're concerned about what lost people are going to think. You don't say, well, they don't understand communion. We're not going to do that anymore. You do it in front of them and you explain what you're doing. You don't say, well, we're not going to preach the whole counsel of God's word because they might be offended by a particular chapter. You preach the whole counsel, but you explain it in a way they understand it. Hmm. Public witness. So I, I think what's interesting here, I'm thinking back to my own mindset. And in part, I love that imagery in scripture of the church as a family and a flock and the fact that we're brothers and sisters in Christ and... I believe that the public gathering of God's people for worship is fundamentally for the people of God. Like we're, we're called to gather, we're called to meet in our homes, we're called to treat each other like brothers and sisters, we're called to commemorate the Lord's Supper. But if we look at the life of the early church, they were also public in their worship. So in, in the book of Acts, 
Peter preaches to the people that gather, and it says there that they were meeting in the temple courts and in homes. So they were meeting in the temple courts and in homes. The temple court is not the mall. The temple court was a place of public worship. And as these Jewish people would come to worship in the temple courts, they would be preaching in a place of worship. They would be preaching the gospel because they knew that while there are many people in the temple courts that may have thought that they were true believers, they weren't yet. So they preached the gospel. And I think there's a principle there that the church is a family, and sometimes there's a need for private gatherings in our quote-unquote homes for the people of God to come and deliberate, pray, and and be taught things that maybe aren't as meaningful or as necessary at this point for lost people. But in our public worship, we should always be willing to, to preach the gospel with the assumption there's lost people present. So instead of thinking of our, let's say, our Sunday morning worship services simply as the New Testament equivalent of the meeting in homes, maybe we should think of it as the New Testament equivalent of the meeting in homes and meeting in the temple courts. So what I'm suggesting there is that when we're conducting worship in our churches on a Sunday morning, for example, we are ministering as brothers and sisters in Christ, and we are teaching and instructing our people in the word of God, but lost people show up. The lost people might be our own children. Mm -hmm. Or the lost people might be someone that just stumbled in off the street, or it might be a neighbor that we invited to church, or someone that just heard about us and felt there was something missing in their life and wanted to go to a church on Sunday. I was talking to a Christian this week, and he said, when I came to Christ, I didn't even know the difference between a Baptist church and a Catholic church, so I just started attending both. And then over time, I realized the falsehood of Roman Catholicism, and I, I went to a Baptist church. And um, I just thought, well, that's interesting. Like a there's people that come to church. They they may have come to faith in their living room just reading the Bible by themselves. They've never been discipled. They, they just see the word church on a sign and they show up. Mm -hmm. They need to be discipled. Or there may be people that just feel some deep need in their life and decide to go to church. So when we get up and preach or lead worship, you don't have to pick between speaking and communicating in such a way that is only understandable to save people or only for lost people. Why do you have to pick between the two? You can do both. You can engage in public worship and you can preach in a way that lost people may not understand it on a spiritual level, things illuminated by the Spirit of God, but they understand your language. You've explained, we're about to do the Lord's Supper. You've explained it. So they're like, I've never seen this before. This is different, but at least I understand what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Baptism, we're going to baptize, Lord willing, 33 people on Sunday. We're going to explain what that is because lost people will come out to witness that. It's a public wit. It's a public event, mm -hmm. right? So that's, that's really, really important. I also think it's good for us to be aware of the worldview of the audience we're trying to reach. Paul demonstrated this well in Acts 17 where he addresses the Stoics and the Epicureans their, their worldview is labeled there in Acts 17. They're called the Stoics and the Epicureans. Mm -hmm. That tips you off to what they believed, and Paul would debate them in light of what he knew they believed. Well, we're a whole lot more successful when we minister the gospel to people, understanding their worldview first. So if we understand their worldview, if we study worldviews, we're like, okay, this guy is a, 
a materialist. This guy is a statist. This guy is a Buddhist, whatever it might be. We can we then adjust and bring the gospel to bear upon the specific lies or falsehoods that they've bought into. And that's important. And then, of course, one of the things the early church did, Chris, as you know, is it was prepared to suffer for their faith. They were dragged before the courts. And that's part of our witness. This, this notion that just being Mr. Rogers-like, you know, quiet and meek and meek, mild-mannered is, is our winsome witness, it's, it's absurd. There's times for silence. But when lives are being destroyed, there's no, that's not the time for silence. When the state is interfering with the worship and ministry of the church, that's not time for silence. That's time for having a good, robust conversation. Mm -hmm. So that's all. Those are some things that early Christians did that shows their their passion for the lost, their willingness to consider the audience, whether it's the Stoic, the Epicurean, the guy that thinks he's going to true worship, the person that shows up at your home. There was an awareness of the audience. And I, I think if there's mm -hmm. nothing else listeners would take away from this, you don't need to compromise at all, mm -hmm. but be more aware of your audience. Be more aware of your audience and adjust your communication and the way you interact to their uh, presence in your service or your small group or your Bible study or whatnot. Yeah, that's really hard of the Apostle Paul when he says too, he's like, I've become all things to all people. Exactly, right? exactly. More. Yeah, exactly. Um, so if you were to think then, okay, take it to our our day. Today, we're talking to a, a pastor or a leader of a church and they're like, okay, so what mindset changes do you think our church needs to adopt to become more missionary minded? What would you say? Mm -hmm. Well, again, some of this is more caught than taught, but <clears throat> the stuff we can teach. So we have to think like missionaries. So if you're a pastor, start thinking of yourself as a missionary pastor. This is what Paul instructed to Timothy in 2 Timothy 5, when he tells him to be sober-minded, to endure suffering. And then he says, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So it's not like, like I know some people are gifted as evangelists and some are gifted as teachers, but in an anti-Christian culture, when lost people are gonna come into your radar screen in your churches on a regular basis, you have to think like a missionary pastor. So you're pastoring your people, you're preaching the word of God, but you have to think like a missionary. You have to consider what, what is, how is a lost person understanding what I'm preaching right now? What are their objections and how can I address their objections because I understand their worldview? How can I adjust my, my approach to them in the foyer to help them to feel welcome? Because it might be kind of uncomfortable coming into a Christian church that may have some preconceived notions of the church that I wanna immediately eradicate mm -hmm. so there's no unnecessary barriers for them to hear the gospel. So here's something that's maybe gonna uh, be a little strange for people to hear, but I don't actually think there's a difference between an evangelistic sermon and a sermon preached to believers. I think the word of God aptly preached should always have two targets in mind, the lost and the saved the lost and the found. Mm -hmm. Whenever you're preaching, unless it's you and I or three other guys, and I know for a fact you're all Christians, whenever I'm in a public setting, a little bit of a larger group, I wanna preach to lost people and found people at the same time because chances are 
both sorts are in the audience. For sure on a Sunday morning, for sure, every week, there's mm -hmm. going to be lost people yep. in the room. And that means that the way I unpack the text, the way I welcome people, the way I explain and lead worship is done in such a way that the the the, the believer is sanctified, the believer is blessed, the believer is fed, but I'm also always keeping in my radar lost people. So I don't avoid big words. I don't avoid theological words. I don't avoid Christian faithfulness. We'll, we'll address anything. We'll address anything, including controversial issues, matters of life or death. We'll talk about abortion. We'll talk about same-sex marriage, as they call it. We'll, we'll talk about divorce. You know, we'll talk about those very practical issues that can kind of hit people hard. And we'll also talk about any and every issue pertaining to Christian theology, but it's always in context. The way I circle in, the way I lead up, the way I, I explain a word. You want to do it in such a way that you're trying to communicate to both lost people and found people. Jesus, I'm sure, had a lot of sidebar topics, conversations with his disciples, but almost always he's preaching to both. He's preaching to lost people and he's preaching to found people. He's preaching to his disciples and he's preaching to his antagonists and he's preaching to people that are interested. Mm -hmm. So pa Paul, I, presumably, when he was planting a church, did the same thing. He's doing both and we should do the same thing as well. I think that's really, really, um, really, really important. The second thing would be organize your church and structure your church and develop leaders so you're ready for exponential growth. You sort of got to act bigger than you are. So here's the thing. What if 100 people came to faith in Jesus Christ this coming week? Would your church be prepared to disciple those people, to counsel those people, to catechize those people, and to lead them forward in their newfound faith in Jesus Christ. Well, some churches would be prepared for that because they have an, they have gone ahead and they've they've discipled and trained up new elders. They have other guys in the wings that they're developing into eldership. They have small group leaders and they're developing small group leaders. They're expanding their vocational staff. They're saving up money for a building expansion. They're adding parking lots. They're communicating uh, developing communication structures so you can get information out to a broader number of people more quickly. They're doing that. Other churches are not. They're structured strictly for the number of people that go to the church right now. And so what happens in a lot of those churches, you have great people, somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ and the pastor has to disciple them directly. And then another person does and it's on him again. And then you start to show up so then he runs the youth group. Right, And then there's a lot of men that need to be helped, so then he runs the men's group, and he just does everything. That's not a role of a pastor. We're to equip God's people for the work of the ministry, not do all the ministry. I believe that we should always act bigger than we are, and that means having a clear discipleship model, being okay with not knowing everybody, developing new elders, keeping an eye on your parking lot, your the number of chairs you have, these sorts of things, your signage, all really, really important to create a welcoming environment that's hospitable for growth. Mm -hmm. And I think we've talked before too about the value of um, 
you know, seeing somebody that does it at the next level, so to speak, not next level, but next size, let's say like a larger right. family or kids, people with kids that are older than you. Similarly, that could apply to churches that are, you know, one step bigger than you. It's a great idea. When I was um, a young dad and we had our little babies and toddlers, I would pay careful attention to people that had elementary school aged kids because I wanted to see how they did it. So I was prepared for that next level. And then when I had the elementary age kids and I pay attention to those that had high schoolers, when I had high schoolers, I pay attention to those that had young adults. And you learn, you learn from the good and the bad. And the same principle applies to the church. It's always good to just pay attention to what churches that are ministering to more people are doing and just learn from them. There's no, there's no jealousy. There's no competition. It's just, if you're a church, when we were a church of 35 people, you're moving toward a hundred. You're like, okay, now I got to figure out how to adjust to pastoring a hundred people. You get to a hundred, you got to figure out how to pastor 200. And one of the great ways of doing that is just observing other churches that do that well and just learning, like, how did you expand your staff? How did you find and develop new elders? How did you take your church through a building campaign? How did you change from, you know, maybe just Sunday morning announcements where you announce everything to more like mass communication systems because you're just reaching more people? How did you keep your uh, church files secure? How did you develop databases or whatever it is that is necessary? They're just organizational principles. How do you do that? Mm -hmm. So to your point, it is good to pay attention to people that are a few steps ahead of you and just learn from them. And we should always be willing to do that. Mm -hmm. yeah. And at the same time, not taking a canned approach, obviously, where, you know, go to the conference and come back with 20 ideas and you change your church all yeah. of a sudden. Yeah. It doesn't, it's like. Yeah, good point. Um, so we have to adapt and develop what other churches are doing so they work in our context. So we're we're planting a church in Paris, Texas right now. And uh, many of our people have moved down there and they're getting a church off the ground. And it's going to have the same doctrine and the same basic values to it. But it's different. It's a different culture and it's a different context. And there's different people there and there's a different pastor. So you're going to have uh, some different ways of unpacking those principles, those ministry mm -hmm. principles in that context. And that's fine. It's not like a cookie cutter approach. Yeah. But church plants learn from mother churches, just yep. like we learn from from other churches. Also, um, as a pastor and as a leader in your church or as an influencer, you're going to want to make sure you defend your, your flock from wolves. But don't let your flock just stay in the sheepfold. So you make a mistake when your church just becomes a holy huddle. You got to get the sheep back out onto pasture. The holy huddle meets to plan for the game, to plan for war, to get back on the field and to combat the enemy or the opponent. So you want to make sure while you're defending your people, you don't want to create a mindset in your church where we just kind of come together. It's a place of refuge. We all sort of breathe a big sigh. Okay, we're in church. The bad guys are outside the walls of the church and then just start piling on programs and responsibilities in the church. So people's lives become all about the family gathering and they're not connecting with lost people. They lose sight mm -hmm. of the world around them. So there needs to be some discretion there and some balance. We say to our people, we don't want you in church all the time. We want you out there ministering to uh, people in the local hockey association. We want people 
ministering to people in the dojo. We want you ministering to your neighbors and and we want you tending to your family. And at the same time, we want you in church when it's necessary for you to be in church. So that's a, that's mm-hmm. something that's really, really important. All right, so how about this one? How much time do many pastors spend paying attention to other flocks, looking out beyond their own flock to what's going on in the broader churchosphere? You know what? My sense is that some guys spend far too much time doing that. They're constantly listening to other men preach, paying attention to what the latest gossip columnist says about some fallen pastor they've never met, three provinces over or five states up. They, they're they aware of every doctrinal dispute in the broader church. They, mm-hmm. they read extensively. They're on all these blogs and Christian article producers that are talking about all the different issues of the day. Well, I think it is important for a pastor to spend two, three, four, five percent of his time aware, making himself aware of what's going on in the in the broader church. But if you're spending 50% of your time paying attention and commenting on what's going on outside of your church, how in the world do you have time to shepherd your own flock? One of the reasons why churches don't grow is because guys don't put enough attention to their own flock, to actually reproducing their sheep, to actually caring for their sheep, to actually guiding and directing and leading their sheep. I see guys, they seem to, their hobby, you see this on social media, their hobby seems to be to be aware of everything that's going on in broader Christendom. I'm oblivious to a lot of it. Rarely do I ever listen to other guys preach unless I'm at a conference or you know, I'm in their churches. I don't have time for that. I'm sorry. There are a lot of great preachers out there. I don't have time to keep up on every sermon, every controversy, every new theological debate. And there, because we have access to the internet and there's so much of that out there, there's so much accessible, it, it can be so tempting just to dive headlong into that and all your time is spent really paying attention to other people's flocks. That's mm-hmm. how I'd say it, and not your own. So there needs to be some balance, balance in that regard and it's just not a good use of your time if half your time is spent thinking about what's going on in the broader church uh, at the you know at the risk of not developing your own. Courage is important, Chris. We need to be risk takers instead of hiding in our own little institutions, concerned about having our charitable status revoked. We need to speak into the events of our day. And there's some life or death issues out there. So we'll talk a little bit about guys that maybe dabble too much in... Um, doctrinal distinctives in a moment, but it's always worth your time speaking out against abortion. It's always worth your time speaking out against movements that would want children to have their genitals cut off. Mm. These are atrocious things. These are basic justice things. These are dehumanizing. These are literally destroying lives by the mm. hour. So it's it's good to be able to speak to those issues because they're emergencies. They're critical issues. They're literally life or death issues. But if I could be so bold, I think that there, there at times is a tendency for good men, good pastors, good Christian leaders to maybe exercise a, a little bit too little discretion or wisdom in the way they talk about some more controversial or 
doctrinal distinctive type issues in, mm. in social media and in public. So for example, uh, there's some on the other end of this uh, podcast that will love to hear me say this and others that will be like, ah, that's where I disagree with you, Aaron. Okay, fine. But I'm a Calvinist and I've been a Calvinist for 40 years probably since I was a kid. But what I don't do is I don't jump on social media. I don't use the sign at the road. I don't go to our website. I don't use my blog uh, to present all my Calvinistic views to an audience that's largely composed of lost people or people that don't go to our church or people that may have a different understanding of what Calvinism is than is actually true. Mm. I don't jump on social media and trash post-millennialists, amillennialists, dispensationalists to make these hardline statements that you're, you know, you're unfaithful to God's word if you're this or that. I do have those conversations with people in our church. And I do seek to address those issues as they come up in the biblical text and try to give people a robust biblical theology that spills into their systematic theology. I think these issues are important. But why would I, if I want to win people to Christ, why would I, in, in the public realm, articulate a particular view which could potentially rob me of the opportunity to ever share the gospel to these people or to bring them along in the way I think about Scripture. Now, I'm not suggesting that we hide our doctrine. Hmm. And I think there are forums and venues, like, for instance, on this podcast, I bet you 99.9% .9 of the people that listen to this, except for maybe a few trolls, are Christians. So we can talk more openly about maybe theological distinctives. But on Facebook, I have thousands of people that pay attention to what I do that have never done the door of a church, mm -hmm. that don't know Christ, or maybe are in another church and are thinking about the possibility of coming to our church. So what I want to do is I want to accentuate the core doctrines of my faith, and I want to speak to these life or death issues in culture, but I want to exercise some discretion mm -hmm. in what context I unpack some of these secondary doctrines, some of these doctrinal distinctives, if you will, some of these more controversial matters for no other reason than I just happen to think that if I, if I have an opportunity to bring people into our church and to over time help them to understand some of these distinctives rather than almost guarding the door, saying, you know, at the, at the proverbial door, saying, this is where I stand. If you don't stand on this issue, you're not welcome within the doors of my church. If you don't hold my eschatology, you're not welcome here. If you don't hold my distinctives in the area of soteriology, you're not welcome here. I don't do that because I want to bring them in because I'm pretty confident that the word of God speaks for itself. And as I teach the word of God, they will, chances are, come to that conclusion and be blessed by it. So I, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that you know, we be deceptive or we hide our views on any issue. 
But a missionary-minded person realizes there's sort of category A doctrines mm -hmm. and there's category B doctrines. And then we perhaps there's even category C doctrines. And you want to articulate the, the core matters of your faith, but you don't want to unnecessarily exclude people from having a relationship with you or having an ongoing conversation with you about an issue because you sort of, in the way you've conducted yourself, let's say on social media, you've already told people you're not welcome here if you don't hold to this distinctive, mm. right? If that makes sense. Now, this is kind of like a, um, a discernment issue, okay? So I'm, I'm, I'm giving illustrations, but I'm speaking more to like discernment. I think that there's a lot of men, they tend to be younger men. And one of the things I love about younger men is they're always ready to go to war. Yeah. But they, they tend to be younger men who are in love with theology and in love with the word of God and they're reading extensively, but there might be a little bit of a lack of discretion or wisdom in the most appropriate venue to unpack that. If you wanna expand your ministry, why wouldn't you pastor a church in such a way that it's a big tent where a lot of different people of different persuasions are welcome to come in? And then once they're in, you start to help them to think through these issues and work them, uh, bring them along, instead of, to carry the metaphor forward, putting a sign on the front of a tent saying, well, if you're not a Calvinist, you're not welcome in our church, or if you're not, if you don't hold to our views on sign gifts, you're not welcome in our church. So just exercise some, some discretion there in what you broadcast in the public. So there's a difference between what you talk about in your church, where now you're developing a relationship and you have, an, you have people in proximity to you, and what you declare out into the public realm where there's maybe a lot of lost people that are thinking about coming your way. Yeah, as you say that, I think to myself, it's almost about uh, thinking through how discipleship actually works on a real life basis. Um, we're not assuming people to come to us fully discipled. And so you want to be able to bring them along or see minds change. Like how do, how was your mind changed on certain things? Well, it probably wasn't instantaneously. Yeah. It's by exposing it to truth mm -hmm. and relationships with people that care to speak the truth to you. Yes. Yeah. I, I think that's accurate. And also just being aware. So a, being in, if someone walks into a church and they're sitting in a church, they, they agreed to be in a church. So they have to sort of subject themselves to whatever is being preached in that church, and then they can make a decision to to stay or leave. But you also have the added benefit of having a relationship with those people or potential for a relationship with those people. Like a one-on-one, -on -one, it's not anonymous, it's a one-on-one, -on -one. you can now talk, answer questions, think through the issues. But if you take all of your doctrinal distinctives and you let's say broadcast them in public before you have a relationship, before you've met, even met that person. And let's say they have a, they have, they misunderstand what Calvinism is hmm. or they misunderstand what historic premillennialism is or whatever it might be. They misunderstand these things. Then they're just not even gonna bother showing up and you've now lost the opportunity to potentially disciple that person and bring them along. So there's just that discernment there. I want, to minister to as many people as possible, their souls. Why wouldn't I want to? So then I'm always exercising discretion. I, I speak boldly to matters of life or death or evil in culture. 
I speak boldly to the core fundamentals of my faith because they're part of my whole identity as a Christian. But I'm comfortable over a greater and more extended period of time in the context of relationship, helping people to come to, let's say, a complementarian understanding of role relationships or a more reformed understanding of salvation or these sorts of things. And mm-hmm. you know, I've overstepped at times too and maybe said things publicly that I should have reserved for a a church service or whatever it might be. But that, I just I just want guys to think yeah. about that, just to think about what's the venue within which you're communicating. Yeah. Right? The proverbial word in season, right? It's mm-hmm. like the right word at the right time. Like a really rough analogy is if, if you're a professor and now you're in a seminary class, you can talk differently and unpack things differently than if you're teaching the grade three boys Sunday school class at your church. Right. You still have the same Bible. You still, over time, want to get the same stuff out. You want those grade three boys to grow up to become thoughtful, theologically minded men. But it's it's a different venue, and you're bringing the Bible and the Word of God to bear in a different context. And what I don't want people in the world that may be thinking about coming to our church or sitting under our ministry in our proverbial temple court to think, oh, I guess I got to be a Calvinist to go to that church, but I don't even know Jesus yet. Mm-hmm. Or I just got saved last week. I don't even know, I don't even have an opinion on eschatology, but you know, this guy is pretty hardcore on it, so I guess I'm not welcome there unless I, I know where he stands. It's motivated by love mm-hmm. um, and just like a missionary heart to bring people along. We're all, we're all sanctification is progressive, right? Yep. So, Yeah, any other thoughts in terms of... Uh you know, mindsets to change in your church or things to think about? Well, you're going to, we all live in glass houses, as they used to say, meaning that we're all in the spotlight. We're all being evaluated and assessed. And we need to be aware of that in the way that we lead our churches. We need to be aware of optics, if you will. But at the same time, we don't need to walk on eggshells and beat around the bush or pretend to be someone we're not. Just be honest and real. Um, you you are going to offend people. The gospel's offensive. I guess one way of putting this whole conversation together would be to say the gospel's offensive and will remain so, but we want to be less and less offensive ourselves. In other words, I don't want myself to be the barrier mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> to someone hearing the gospel or coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And again, I at the risk of repeating myself a hundred times in this show, there is no there is no need to compromise anything anything when it comes to your faith or your values or your historic christian beliefs in order to win people to christ you can still preach the full gospel but do it winsomely and wisely and contextually and using language that lost people can listen to and understand and if we saw more of that, I think we'd probably see the Lord using us in a greater way to see more and more people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So he ultimately is responsible for that. He's sovereign over the affairs of men, but we are the laborers he sends out. And uh, so we have to think through how we communicate and how we present ourselves, and it could be for the good or for the bad, but hopefully it's for the good and we're all growing and being more and more effective and useful to the Lord. 
Yeah. Well, it's a good word, Aaron. I appreciate it. And I know our listeners do as well as they start to think about how to apply this to their context in ministry and to hopefully see greater fruitfulness for the kingdom of God. So thank you for that. Just a reminder to our listeners, you can find this show over on pursuitofglory.org. That's Pastor Aaron's personal uh, blogging site. Um, And also as well on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. You can download it on whatever podcast platform uh, that you listen to. And make sure to share it as well to get the word out. Um, And join us next week for another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock.